Now can you hear me? I can hear you, man. The dulcet tones of John Butterfield. <laughs> How are you doing? Good. Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Sorry to be a few minutes late. Uh, are we now? Are we on the air now, or how's this working? Coast to coast, around the world. Yes, we're on. Oh, okay. This All is right. official. And by the way, I you know I don't know if, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but you know I, I've been out of the podcast business for I don't know maybe two years, and this is the first podcast. Uh, I've recorded since then. So thank you. Oh, uh, well, sure. So why did you stop doing the podcast? You know, I, I guess I guess I got burned out. Oh, okay. Well, that certainly makes sense. I was wondering if it had something to do with COVID. Um, or it may have, right? I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that COVID did that I don't really think of firsthand, but you know, I think we, um, I, I was probably burned out before that. You know, I had created a monster in a way. I had these podcasts that were all highly engineered and highly stylized, where you had music at the beginning and an introduction and music at the end and then silly little vignettes. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it, it became a lot of work. And so I got burned out. And then when COVID hit, I thought we could all use a dose of war game in our lives. Yeah. So I went back and interviewed, I don't know, maybe 20 people just in short form recordings. And then... Well, and also, didn't you do some of that in, in uh, context of your, your online conventions that you hosted? We've done a few. We've done a few. And we've done a few um, video recordings. Uh -huh. that were in that context. Um, but I like the short form. I like this. I like this. Just call you and let's talk kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, and and I, I, you know, it seems a little more pure. Um, I, I get a lot of good feedback from it. But from an effort perspective, you know, I just arrange it, we talk, and then it's really just about finished. Yeah, yeah, good. No, I was thinking of uh, during during one of those conventions. I think you and I and Mark Herman had a conversation that and, and that was a lot of fun. You know, just kind of rambling about uh, what we remembered. That was excellent. That was excellent. We need more of that because uh, you know I just fear like I fear that we're going to forget that stuff, right? Um, yeah. Well. My recollection of that particular conversation was Mark would say something really fascinating about the past that I had been a part of. And I would say, oh, yeah, I remember that now. <laughs> <laughs> he had it together. <laughs> that's good. That, uh, you know, that's that's not my recollection. My recollection was you, were, you had some interesting observations. I uh, to try to be cute, I presented a few pictures uh, of the building that you all were in that I had looked up and I don't know how I got the yes. pictures, but I, you know, the first two weren't even, I don't know. I don't know what building they were. I don't even think they were in New York. <laughs> and, uh, and so they were shot down post haste, but the, uh, we eventually had something and I think we identified it because there was some strange business next door to the storefront. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, but those storefronts change, so I I would have believed anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark was the skeptic. You were playing yeah, along. Yeah. So uh, so good. So how have you done over the last two years? Well, you and I have seen each other. Actually, we saw each other a month or so ago, right? Yeah, at Consum World Expo. Yeah, yeah that, that was that fun. Was fun. Um, and then I, I attended like two or three of you, of the online conventions, and those were really good also. Um, but yeah, I went to Consum World last year, too. It was much lower attended last year. This year, they really had a full house. Um, so uh, there was a lot going on there. Um, and you and I got to play uh, a new unreleased game design. I don't know if we can talk about that or not. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to, and then we'll ask for forgiveness <laughs> after. And ask for forgiveness later. Right. It was Dan Bullock's. Yeah, uh, Dan Bullock, who I met at that occasion. Very nice guy. Yeah, yeah, and a creative, interesting guy. I, you know, we, um, to take another tangent, we we just finalized, the SD HisCon has an, an award that we give every year for a game that advances accessibility in the hobby. And, um, you know, there are a lot of ways to do that, right? Easy to play, easy to learn, interesting new topics, all sorts of things that qualify. And Dan has a game called No Motherland Without, which is a, a game it's about of, North Korea. It's about North Korea. And yeah. uh, I was just thinking of what a what an interesting and bright young man that is. He uh, he also has a game on um, where you play four different David Bowie's, different parts of David Bowie's career. What? Oh, I got to see that. And uh, is that published? It's uh, I think it's available print and play, but. Um, but we'll we'll I'll make sure we get him we'll get us some files and, and play it next time I see you. He looks a little bit like David Bowie now that you mention it. He might be one of the personas. Oh, cool. And so you have to advance right. so it's like a Ziggy Stardust, the thin white duke, uh, the different right. the different eras of Bowie. That's right. Well, and yeah, oh, enough second. said. But yeah. what a you know, what a creative guy. He's uh, he's got all kinds of interesting Dan and, and Bowie, both creative. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, it goes. Are you, do you like Bowie, David Bowie? Are you oh, yeah. Guy? Yeah. I think he was a, a genius. And also, it seemed like he was very kind of, kind of cynical and, and, and standoffish in his young days, but he's actually always quite friendly and engaging when you see him on talk shows and things like that. Just seemed like a nice chap all around and, and, yeah. and yet a trendsetter in every way. And every album was different, right? That yeah. was the amazing thing with him. There was no, you really, it's hard to recognize a David Bowie song style-wise because everything, every album was something really different. Yeah. So I guess Dan was inspired by that. Um, but uh, yeah, so the game we played of his is is about military contracting in Afghanistan which when I mentioned, oh, I played a game about military contracting in Afghanistan, people say, huh? <laughs> but it was quite fun. <laughs> you know, it, it, when he first told me about it, I thought it was going to be some silly thing where you build stuff and it's, you move a meeple here and you move a meeple there. I was amazed at the research that he had done into the different uh -huh. types of contracts, the taxonomy associated with that, 
um, all, all of which, you know, based on his recount to us seemed, you know, based in real life it was very interesting. Yeah, and yet uh, I agree that it had a lot of content to it, uh, but it also was not that complex a game. You know, it, it played like a Euro, a worker placement game. Yeah. Uh, but uh, And also it was it was a highly interactive. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we all got to uh, blame uh, Bobby for, you know, his misplays. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and it, it's yeah, it seemed like everybody was stealing opportunities away from you, right? Just you kind of went around, yeah, yeah. And, um, and did your thing. So, uh, yeah. what else did you play at Consim World that you liked? Um, I played uh, well. I had, was play testing two of my games. Uh, well, on Hell's Highway, which is a, a a redesign I'm doing of the old Hell's Highway game, but also the the game I took over from. Chad Jensen, uh, Downfall. I was playtesting that with Marty Sample and uh, On Hell's Highway with Marty and Mark Hinkle, who's with New England Simulations. He's he's publishing the game. But I also had a chance to play the new Fighting Formations uh, on 29th Infantry Division with Kai Jensen. Um, what else? I mean, that was most of my time. I had to leave early because I had, I had to get home for some other stuff. But um, uh, I always enjoy that venue, although the food choices have, deter have you know, diminished since COVID because a lot of restaurants uh, on the Strip there closed. Um, it was a little bit sad walking up and down the streets there, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot more bustling in past years. Um, but the venue itself is really nice. Yeah. It's, it's the best it's the best war game it's the best game convention i think i've ever been to as far as the quality of the specific venue how about you uh yeah i would agree with that and also the you know for us the 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 combination of uh kind of you know classic war gaming and monster war gaming and new stuff being done and and there's a mix of you know uh, gamers and designers and publishers there so there's a lot of opportunity for you know the friendly network networking that i like to do doing, because doing. that's really why i'm in, you know why i'm engaged in designing in the hobby is because i like working with people that i like yeah. and uh being creative with uh, people that i like and that's a venue where where that that kind of gestates yeah yeah yeah, it's it maybe as close as war gamers have to an industry meeting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love WBC as well. Uh, I don't know. Have you ever been to WBC? I, I was there in the in the last few years of the host. I oh, okay. When that place was falling apart. Yeah. Well, the uh, I, I haven't been since COVID, so I didn't go this year, even though it was running again. But uh, yeah, I enjoy that too, just for the the open gaming and the wide range of things that are going on there. You know, there's a lot more Euro stuff there, but there's a lot of more gaming too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I tend to do more playtesting of my stuff at Consum World where I can get a more focused audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How is the, are you, do you, do you get something out of the playtesting 
Do you, do you sit, do you have two players play a game, two player game and you watch, how do you do it? Well, it depends on the stage of the design. In the case of On Hills Highway, I was one of the players and, you know, I'm still tweaking some of the systems of that game, uh, some, some of the changes to the system. Uh, with, uh, with Downfall, it's, uh, we're really just kind of doing final balance testing right now. Um, we were concerned about whether the Germans were collapsing too early, you know, but uh, uh, or, or if the Allies had too much of an advantage. But in the game I played with Marty, the uh, the Soviets ended up uh, winning, and it, and not too far ahead of historical schedules. So, so that was good. Um, yeah, and that that's a long game, so you want a venue where you can play it for two or three days if you need to. Uh, so. In person, I much prefer testing in person than on Vassal, um, because to me the form factor of the paper and the cardboard and the cards, and how you actually manipulate them across the table from another player, is I think essential to the game experience. And on Vassal, that's all kind of flipped on its head. I mean, because you're dealing with buttons, and you know, I'll get. When a game of mine is being tested on Vassal, half the comments will be about how the Vassal module is not working right. And that's frustrating because <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Excellent. Just work point. around it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, you know, um, the, the, the physical form, um, I was sitting with Chad and Kai one, once, um, and we were, it was at, at a consim world, um, a few years back and we were talking about how players flip counters. So a counter that, that is in some way activated and flips to the other side. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, most games are printed. So they flip top to bottom. So, so, so if you, if you flip it, you flip it, you know, top to bottom right so the 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 x axis would be the axis of rotation is that reasonable i that's interesting cuz i think that i mean when every game that of mine has been printed the front and back are facing the same direction you have to flip the counter side to side in order to so so that was chad's point that that, that many games print so that they flip over the x-axis of rotation and that players flip on the y-axis so it sounds like your games are all perfect which doesn't surprise me <laughs> but that was true of sbi games too i mean mm -hmm. the way they were printed yeah the, the way they were laid out and printed they were all facing the same direction well so you've ruined my evening. I'm going to spend the next hour going through the boxes in my closet. Just trying to flip the counters in every game you own. Every and game I own. I'm going to do a know, survey. Do a tabulation and let me know. We're going to do an article for Conflicts of Interest <laughs> magazine. <laughs> on counter flipping. On counter flipping. Uh, yeah. I, I've got you thinking too, though, now. Right? I know. I'm looking at these games. Yeah. <laughs> All right. John Holland gets up 44. to grab a game. A great game. Holland 44 by Mark Simonich. Yes. Those right. are, there's if no way you don't flip side to side i'm going to be very disturbed i'm going to be upset as well i'm going to yeah look up. see here's the counter 
Right. Where's my camera up here? That's good enough. And now I just flip it side to side and it's the same. Perfect. And it's on my head. <laughs> All right. So that's conclusive. Every game is like that. Every game. So from, yeah, we, therefore, ergo. All right. I, uh, well, I'll change subjects then since my point is moot. The, the, um, I, I enjoy watching people play test a game because I feel like it's much more telling than them giving me a report. Um, I gather much more from, from the, from the physical observation. Yes, I definitely agree. And part of that is because when you get a report, you, well, firstly, you don't know if they've been playing it right. Right. And uh, so observing a play test, and this is very important, not advising, you shouldn't advise your playtesters on what to do. Uh, then you can see if they're playing it right. And if they're not, is it because, you know, they just missed something or there's something that's not clear? Um, yeah, it's a balance because you want to get, you want to get results that allow you to see if the game, you know, is, is, is balanced and if it if it plays through with the history but you don't want to have to you know correct people while they're playing because that's a failure um yeah so actually i want to go back to counter flipping and counter orientation because we were talking about downfall Oh, you're shaking your head. No, no, John, you can't do that. No, you can do whatever. Look, you're on <laughs> Butterfield. You can, you can so, talk about. Uh, in downfall, if you look at the counters, you would think it's a block game because the counters rotate to indicate strength uh, with pips. One pip on one side, then two on one edge, two and then three, and then in some cases, four. Um, and so when I first saw the game, I thought, well, how's that going to work? You don't, you know, we usually just rotate counters kind of informally to indicate they've moved or something like that. But here it's, uh, you actually need to keep track of, of, you know, the facing of the counter because it determines its strength as it's laying flat on the board. And because it's a two-player game, the other player's counters, and they're on the other side of the table, uh, his his or her counters are facing the opposite direction. So, you know, the, the top of my counters from my perspective, top edge is its strength, but the bottom edge of my opponent's counters from my perspective is the strength of those counters. And I, in my head, I thought that's just not gonna work. But, you know, we built the play test kits, we've been playing it live with people and it works just fine. Um, and it, it helps that it's low low counter density and that their stacking is limited to two counters. Uh, but, um, and then Kai was telling me that, you know, Chad toyed with that for years before he decided it worked. Uh, and he was looking at the facing on the opposite sides of the counters. Because in this game, the flip of a counter is a change in its type. So, you can go from a three strength infantry, you flip it and it becomes a three strength armor uh, because you've upgraded it. 
So that's what he was using the flip side of the counters for, not for a change in strength, but for a change in type. Um, and it was important then to be able to control on a single counter flexibility in type and in strength. And so that's the system he came up with. And uh, I think it works actually works brilliantly. But what's funny, speaking of Vassal, is when you play it on Vassal, all the all the counters have to face in the same direction for, for their strength because you're all looking at it from the exact same perspective. And that's one of the things that drives me crazy about Vassal, because in, in a real game, you don't do that. You know, you right. always have the counters facing the side of the player. So anyway, a little bit more about flipping and facing. It's interesting. I You know, I still got to spend an hour going through my closet. <laughs> and now that I think about it, that you know, the discussion I had with Chad was about flipping markers, not counters themselves. So, so it was oh, it like was, status markers. Yes. So I don't know if that changes your position, <clears throat> but I think he was talking about uh, status. But um, I don't know. We'll see. I we'll see. I, I really thought about that, but I'll report on my audit later tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. The. Yeah. Um, this Do a survey this, monkey poll. <laughs> this yeah. uh, this downfall, this game downfall, has a wonderful history to it. Can you talk us through where it came from? And yes, and, and well, uh, uh, so Chad started designing this game. I would say fifteen years ago. Uh, I mean, the earliest files I've seen are from like two thousand nine. Uh, and um, then it went through many conceptual iterations with him, and then he finally kind of completed the design that he liked best shortly before he died. Um, and when I say complete, he had he had the uh, his counter manifest complete, his order of battle, his map. Um, and uh, some uh, two sets of cards, one for kind of uh, strategic events and the other for actions that the different sides can take. But other than that, there wasn't a word of rules written, but Chad was such a, a, a complete designer in the sense that he was also designing graphically as he went that I, I could kind of pull out the way the game played from looking at how we laid everything out and how the counters and the map related and how the cards and the counters related and, and so forth, that there were there were clues and everything. So, uh, uh, and Kai was very helpful in that, but she had memories of four or five different versions of the game in her head. So it was hard for her to say definitively what was intended when it wasn't clear. So I did uh, what I called forensic game design and and kind of figured out the rest of the game and and, and um, we're getting it, you know, we're finishing it now. It's now an art at uh, GMT, and we hope to publish it early next year. But the history of the game, so the final concept of the game is that it's two players, one player Soviet, one player Western, uh, both working to end the war, to defeat the Third Reich, however, to win the game in such a way that you have the advantage in post-war Europe. So you... So if I'm the West, I also control the Germans in the East facing the Soviets. And if I'm the Soviets, I'm also controlling the, the Germans in, the, in the Western Europe and the Mediterranean. So while I'm trying to defeat 
the axis on one front, I'm I'm the axis trying to stave off defeat on the other front. Um, similar in in that concept to the old Battle for Germany game, although that game starts around the time of the Battle of the Bulge, the very end of '44, and this game begins back in 1942. Now that was the game that Chad ended up with, and it has a fascinating initiative system that keeps the the action going back and forth between between the players and rotating uh, among the four factions. Uh, but his original concept was uh, a more detailed game, you know, a lot more counters, but also it was a four-player game in which you one player was the Soviets, one the West, one the uh, Wehrmacht, and one the Waffen-SS. So it was a really different way to, to, to break up the sides in, in World War II. And he went through various iterations of number of players and side control uh, while in parallel developing this great initiative and order system that you use to play the game uh, to settle at around, around 2018 and 2019 in the, uh, in the game that we pretty much have now. Uh, and uh, I've uh, in a few days an uh, article was is going to appear on in Inside GMT with the, in which I kind of walk through the map and all the the game mechanics that are evident in the map, uh, and the, and then we're going to publish some articles where we're walking through some of the early turns so you can really see how the game plays. Working on that with Bob Heinzman. Um, so it's been a real labor of love for myself and 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 working with Kai on it and and. And even though Chad's graphics have a finished look, Mark Simonich has come in and, and really added a polish to them now that some changes have been made. So that's all happening now. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, Jason Carr and Bruce Mansfield at GMT have been doing development work on it as well. Um, yeah. Good. So that's kind of the story of that game. That's great. And between you and Kai, I'm sure it's going to have quite the rule set and examples and walkthrough. And... Yeah, she just sent me a first go at, at that layout today, actually. First time we've combined the examples and the rules into one document. So we'll start to go through that. And uh, yeah, and in fact, in, in working on the game, she was looking at some some of Chad's work to see if there was a particular layout or a cover style that she wanted to use. And so she found two pages of early rules and setup instructions from 2010 for the game. Uh, but she she didn't know what period it was from, so she sent it to me in case it was something we had missed, so, some, some evidence of other design ideas in the game that we were just going to find out about in, in the 11th hour. But it turned out it was, it was one of the very early concepts for the game, but he had written out in detail how you set up the game. So it turned out not to be related to what we're doing now. So it was kind of a sigh of relief on my part. Because <laughs> I didn't want to suddenly discover that he had an old naval system I'd missed or something like that. <laughs> That's great. Kai said that um, that Chad left a filing cabinets full of thoughts and ideas and games in various stages. Uh, yes. Well, now they're, and they're seeing Fighting Formations 29th Infantry Division through now, um, 
And yeah, I know we had some other projects going with Gene. Um, and he did have a game on the P500 a couple of years ago called Golden Gate Park, which I played and really loved. I love that game. I, it I, is a yeah. game about how to get the most out of a day in Golden Gate Park as a, right. as a visitor, as a tourist. And not only was it a lot of fun, but also it kind of introduced the same initiative system he used in, in Downfall. So yes, you, you can either go for a walk in Golden Gate Park or you can fight out all of World War II <laughs> using <laughs> the same initiative system. Uh, and, was it, and, it was similar to Fields of Fire too, right? Uh, I mean, well, I, you know, with, with less, I, I don't less know what gun, that connection is. <laughs> less gunplay, but the initiative system's different? Uh, than Fields of Fire? Yeah. I don't know. For the yeah well I I I don't know after this you've got me questioning myself after the counterflip <laughs> counter discussion I'm afraid to challenge you on anything but the uh, Golden Gate Park and uh, you know I mentioned to uh, to to Kai that I would like to help her find a home for that yeah you know I, I, don't, I think it's you know it, it's it was on the P500 and GMT isn't quite the audience for it yeah. But, you know, the same could have been said probably for dominant species, and yet the game just really took off once it was published. Yeah. Um, and with Golden Gate Park, it could be a game that that's, you know, a series of games on, you know, famous places to visit. Yeah. Do you think about the audience for your game when you select the publisher for your work? Um. I, I, I don't know. I, I think most about would I enjoy playing this. Um, but having said that, I think I have a, I have a pretty broad, you know, I, I like a lot of different kinds of games. So that, that gives me a lot of flexibility. But I, I, I um, um, you, you mentioned publisher. So you're suggesting that the the type of game might determine the kind of publisher? Well, you know, it, just in this brief discussion, you've mentioned three different publishers for your work, uh, stuff that's pretty current. Oh, right. And I, and I, I wonder right. how you, how do you, how does that happen? I mean, and not that it's bad, right? Yeah. The, the reasons why some of my games have ended up at, at Decision Games and Compass and at GMT the, there's a lot of kind of interpersonal business dynamics I'd rather not get into in, in those decisions. Um, however, one, one of my recent decisions was to do my Hell's Highway redesign with Mark Hinkle at New England Simulations because I am, I so much admire and, and like the his graphic approach and he does all the graphics for his games the um uh you know overlord the killing ground jaws of victory that's all him and they're just beautiful his games are just so beautiful and i just said to myself i'd love to have one of my designs handled by mark Hinkle. and so that's why i went with that for, for that particular game it was already an established game i knew I'd be revising it, but it was basically going to be the same scale, and and I could really see Mark doing a great job with that. Um, so that was kind of a special case. Uh, but but I think, I mean, I, I, these days I'm 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 really enjoying working with 
with GMT because I'm, for one, they they have a larger market than some of the other publishers uh, and um, are probably the company that comes closest to actually having a staff of people to work on games, mm -hmm. you know, which is the way it was when I worked at SPI and, and Victory all those years ago. <clears throat> and you know, like the games I did for, for Decision, uh, I designed and developed. Right. Uh, and that worked out fine because they, you know, they're good at getting things printed and, and uh, uh, they're very, they're very honest, straightforward people. And so that worked out well. However, I didn't, now that I want to design more things, I'd rather not also be the developer. I'd, I'd rather, you know, as, as I said, I enjoy working with people that, you know, creatively and as part of a team on games. So, you know, I, I'm really enjoying, you know, sharing the, the process uh, with different people uh, instead of doing it all by myself. Yeah, which is also the case with, with Enemy Action Karkov. I, I did that pretty much on my own. And that was three games. That took me five or six years. And uh, I'd rather do more and have people help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, uh... now, now you mentioned that you're now you're what you're on hell's highway in the past you've been in the proximity of hell's yeah, highway. it was just hell's highway but now you're yeah. right on it now yeah. you're on it so this yeah. is uh this is different so so what's uh what's different about this than your past work around hell's highway well the uh in the original game for victory was you know my best ideas on how to simulate that battle at a battalion level when I was 27. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 28. And, um, and, you know, and you're in your thirties now. So it's yeah, wild. yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Thinking about, thinking about having a kid and getting married now. <laughs> um, and, uh, the the game was well, well received, but was also it, it I I I felt looking back on it that it had some layers of complexity that it didn't need, and that that the exact same level of historicity um, and simulation value could be attained with a much more streamlined approach to the combat system and the movement system, um, and so. I'm taking the opportunity now to to do that to revise the design, and and because it's different in some ways, the scale's the same in terms of unit scale and and map scale, uh, but uh, the terrain analysis is a little different, and and as I said, the the movement and combat systems are are much simplified, so uh, I, I think it'll be a a better, faster playing, and yet. At, you know, at, at the same scale and time scale as well as the original. Um, the funny story about the map terrain is that when I did the first game with Victory, uh, you know, I'd send a, a letter off to the National Archives to, to try to get, you know, the military map, U.S. military maps from, from 1944. Uh, 
and uh, yeah, from from the archives, and and they would send you photostats of those maps in black and white, and they they were you know very sharp, but they were in black and white, and I didn't realize that mattered. But what I ended up doing because I didn't realize it, but the forests and uh, cultivated farmland looked identical in black and white. One was actually on the actual map brown and one was green, but I made them all the same and made the terrain more difficult than it actually was. So then this time, about two years ago, those same maps are available online. You know, by click of a couple buttons, you can see them and, and, and in great, you know, scan details. So I, you know, I printed those out and then I'm comparing it to my old map. I was like, holy crap. You know, that wasn't forest, that wasn't, you know, polder, that was just open farmland in a lot of cases. So the terrain analysis has, has made it a little easier, especially on the uh, tanks of 30 core. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. That's great. This time around. Yeah. What are you doing with the drop zones? I mean, can we can we change the drop zones in the new game? Um, I think I'll yeah, I haven't done that variant yet. Uh, but the first game had it, and I think I'll keep it. Some players enjoyed playing with that. Um, you have to be careful with that, though, because, you know, historical hindsight can drive the decision in a way that the commanders of the time, you know, wouldn't have had that at God's eye view to do that. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a matter of do you balance that with more capabilities for the for the uh, German side as well. Uh, but yeah, I think it'll be good to have to have that that kind of option in the game. Um, How important for you is that the game the game be balanced between the two players? And what is balance? Yeah, balance is, is balance an odd word because it's it's. I wouldn't say there needs to be an equal chance for the historical Germans or or the historical allies to win. It was it was an uphill battle. The the, the basic plan was flawed, especially near Arnhem. Um, but uh, having said that, you know you you can tweak what it means to win so that you achieve a point of balance. Um, uh, in the game, even if you don't get across the bridge, but you destroy enough of the German army, the 15th and 7th armies, uh, if they, you know, when they're trying to block you, you can at least kind of win a tactical victory. Um, and um, yeah, I, I tend to use victory conditions to to encourage risk-taking uh and even if ultimately it doesn't end up balanced i i think um i think if the play experience is still enjoyable well like in karkov so in that in enemy action karkov which is about the third battle of karkov and and starts with soviet the soviet operation star and gallop to in, in february 43 the soviets have to push as hard as they possibly can, because if they're going to get a big victory, it's going to be in the first six turns of the game. Uh, and the way it's structured, you're really encouraged to do that. 
even if it means you might then get totally crushed after, you know, if you don't quite make it. And so that dynamic makes the gameplay different every time. And, uh, you know, the, the player response is that, yeah, even though I know in the long run I can't win as a Soviets, my God, it's fun, yeah. you know, to, to, to go crashing through and to try to do it. Um, it even goes back to the, a, a game I co-designed with Howard Barash at SBI called Freedom in the Galaxy, you know, which was a ripoff of Star Wars where, you know, you were the rebellion and the other player was the empire. Well, it turned out it was really almost impossible for the rebels to win the game, but they didn't care. It was still fun to try. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, having the deck stacked against you is the challenge, right? Right, right. And I, and I think in a lot of my solo designs, I... I have a reputation for making the games really hard to win. Some of them, especially the D-Day games, are very hard to win, but it doesn't seem to keep people away. So right. I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's almost yeah. an expectation when you're playing solo. If you win too easily, it's uh, it's, it's disappointing. Now, you but, uh, it, it, you know, in, in, that, in those games, you can only play one side, but in my enemy action games, you can play either side. So, you know, it can't be really hard for both sides you know if you're playing solo both sides uh it, it's more you it's going to be more likely that you'll win as one side than the other mm. uh, yeah. yeah yeah i think this this idea that games need to be perfectly balanced is kind of an artificial construct first of all it doesn't make sense on historical games right that, that things are like that and secondly it depends so much on the players. Right. Now, I, I have these shorter games. I, I did uh, the Battle of the Bulge game, World War II Commander Battle of the Bulge for Compass, and I have another one coming out in a few months on Market Card. And those are short games that take only three or four hours to play in total. And the rules are fairly simple. The, the, the system is based on a system I did for the iPad. Uh, a Battle of the Bulge game I did for the iPad and a couple other games were done using that system as well. And this is a board game version of that. But to your earlier point, to me, those are critical that they're balanced mm. because they're a game. it's a game that's going to be played many, many times and uh, by people playing each other many times. And you want to feel that you can play either side and it's and it's gonna you know come down to you know a late decision and 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 uh you know oh I would have won if that one die roll had gone the other way, you know, that kind of feeling. Yeah. And so I, I think it's important for those games to have a real sense of balance to them. Yeah, I'd like to talk to you about those Shenandoah games. Maybe we'll uh -huh. save that for another another time. But um, you know, talking about balance, you started this off by saying you played downfall with Marty. Yeah. And and you were concerned about a specific issue of balance. Do, what is your. Um, had Marty played the game before? Did he know it well? Marty had played it a few times. Yeah. He would played it with me the year before at Constant World. And also he had his own kit and, and had done some playing of it. He hadn't played it. Uh, he maybe played it three or four times. Now, uh, uh, Bob Heinzman and I have been playing Downfall on, on Vassal 
uh, we played it like over a year and a half continuously, mm -hmm. you know, many, not one game, but many games. And, um, and then we had a whole, uh, several sets of play testers also playing it during that time period. But, um, yeah, you need in that because of the length of the game, it was really important to have some play testers who really got immersed in it. Yeah. Um, because it's it's not a sandbox game in the sense that you can try anything. I mean, uh, but uh, there are options for the allies to invade different places um, and um, for strategic warfare to go this way or that way. Uh, but we, we needed to figure out if the Germans, one, if the Germans could, could last until the spring of 45 or beyond, or were they always going to get crushed early? which wouldn't be good. And if they were going to get crushed early, was it always one side or the other doing it, you know, at a preponderance of the time. And there were some subsystems in the, ga in the game that allowed for different kinds of victory, like, like if one side was way ahead in the partisan war, the game could end because it's clear that they have more political clout. You know, the, the, the Soviet partisans, have more political clout than the uh, Western partisans, for example, that that's a way the game can end. Hmm. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we had tested out those, those various options and, and strategic choices. You know, we tested um, whether an invasion through Greece could work for the allies and what would be the effect of that because the Western forces could come in contact with the Soviets in the Balkans if that happened. Right. And what would, what would that be about? <laughs> yes. So, yeah, we wanted to test all those scenarios because uh, be, I think in a game like um, Cataclysm, you can, it's partly about those crazy things happening, right? But, but this game starts a little too late for that. You're starting in 42 uh, at Stalingrad. And so the die is already cast. Right. Kind of, I mean, the, the, it starts with the Germans at their high watermark and they're going to collapse, right? right? So that in some way needs to happen with the possibility of the historical version of that happening, you know, being possible and viable. Right. So um, very important to test that out in detail. It took a long time. I think I, I placed tested that game more than I think any game I probably designed before. Interesting. Also, just because I love it. It was just Chad's design for it. It's just genius. Yeah. It's yeah, great. What a great story. What about, um, do you move into science fiction? You're you're now working yeah, on, so my, on uh, Pandora? Or? We're, we're announcing on um, either this month or in October, I think, uh, a new, well, kind of new science fiction game, although it's based on a little game I did back in around 1981 called Voyage of the Pandora. Um, and Aries, is that Aries Magazine? Yeah, it was an Aries Magazine game, issue six. Um, and it was a sequel, actually, in terms of topic to a game called Wreck of the Pandora. And Wreck of the Pandora was a ripoff of Alien. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> you know, when aliens aboard a biological survey ship or actually an alien it was a mining ship but they brought a xenomorph aboard and 
you know, we all know what happened. And the hijinks. It, it made Sigourney a star. That's what happened. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, in, 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 the, in the first war game, that was the first, uh, sorry, the first Pandora game, Wreck of the Pandora. That was basically the concept. But then it was decided, well, what if we did a prequel of that, which was really about what was Pandora's mission and what were they doing? And, and so the game I designed was a narrative paragraph driven game where you went from planet to planet and experienced, went down to the surface and, and found life and, and uh, interacted with it, bought it, captured it, brought it back to the ship. Um, and uh, it was a popular little game, but nothing else happened to it. It, it kind of started the whole paragraph driven game thing. And so for Years since then, people said, when are you going to redo that game? Or when is that going to get published again? And so I thought about it. And that, then I thought, well, it really could be a great, like, you know, deep Euro type of game. If, if you changed, if you changed all the tables to cards and the charts to, um, to more, more paragraph driven uh, approach and, and, made separate maps for the different planetary environs and separate maps for different star systems. And you had more control about what, what the Pandora could do, that it could become like an epic uh, long-term adventure game. And so that's what this is. It, uh, we now call it Away Team, uh, the Voyages of the Pandora. And um, uh, it's going to be quite a big box of stuff. And so we've got myself and two other writers, uh, David Spangler and uh, uh, Douglas Sun, uh, writing kind of the the planetary adventures for this thing. And and in in the game, you go down to one planet at a time, so you you could have an adventure there with a little story, but then there could be larger stories that take place in a given star system. But there's going to be seven different star systems to visit, so there could be story arcs that. That you know extend across the different voyages to different star systems, um, and so that's all going to be in, in in the box. So there'll be like this long term adventure. It's a solo game, but there'll also be shorter, kind of a shorter play structure where you can play it two player, um, and you can play it kind of repetitively over and over again, solo without you know uh, with different things happening. Although I will say the the long hundred hour adventure is kind of a, a one-time thing, but it's an engine that will support expansion. That. So that's, yeah. So that's the biggest project I'm working on now. So uh, I'll ask you the dumb question that everybody's going to ask. I just like to be the first to ask the dumb question, but have you thought about technology as a means of delivering the, this complex story? As opposed to uh, a no book. <laughs> Next question. No. Can you can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Do you mean like like where I have some app in my phone that shows me something in the game? Yeah, and don't act like that's crazy. You of all people. I know it was my day job, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. Uh, tell me why that would be good. It would be easier for the user. I mean, well, rules, I rules enforcing that, to some degree. 
Pardon? Say that rules again. enforcing to some degree? Yes. Although, you know, unlike my games like Enemy Action Karkov, I'm really endeavoring to make this one a very simple play structure. Mm -hmm. uh, all your decisions are, are your kind of adventure decisions. You know, do I want to take the risk to do that? Do I want to go here? Do I want to go there? Um, who do I want to bring on the mission? Who's going to be most helpful given what I what the survey shows is on this world. Uh, it, it, it'll all be, you know, decisions of, of a captain or a scientist. And I'm hoping uh, that that's the plan. And so that the, the kind of the paper engine part is going to be very streamlined. Um, so I, I, I don't know, Harold. I mean, you know, I, I did the iPad game, the bulge game, and I definitely respected and took advantage of its form factor on, on a pad. And I thought it was very successful design that way. I mean, I not only designed the game, but I was involved in the interface design as well. Um, here, I see the interface being paper, cardboard, cards, being things you handle. And do you have an iPhone or do you have a flip phone? I have an iPhone, but it's one of the little ones. My <laughs> wife makes fun of me just today. She's like, oh, your screen's so small. I, say, I like it that way. It's a tiny phone. My wife told me for years I needed a bigger phone because my face was so big. It looked silly holding a little phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it was a compliment. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's, um, you've played uh, House on Haunted Hill or whatever that is with the, uh, where the app uh, kind of drives the action. Yeah. I mean, you still uh, play it on a map. And the, the, the games like um, the party games like Werewolf and that sort of thing, yes. where the app uh, kind of secretly handles who you are and what everyone's doing. Yeah. yeah th th those are great. Yeah. Um, they're not necessary, but they're, you know, I don't know. It's a dumb question. Somebody else is going to ask. I want you to be prepared for it. Uh, well, it's not a dumb question, but I'm unprepared for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love the honesty, John. That's one of the, the one of the reasons I like to talk to you. Well, I don't want to take up much more of your time. It was nice of you to spend it with me. And uh, what a nice way for me to get back in the podcasting uh, swing is to talk to my good friend, uh, John Butterfield. So, John, thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Harold. Be great to talk to you and uh yeah if you think of more you know undumb questions so try to be prepared next time <laughs> <laughs> all right very good all right thank you harold